The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. What exactly could loving One Direction have to do with fixing the diversity pipeline problem in tech? Well, if you hear One Direction and go into dismissal mode, that might just be the root of the problem. A few years ago, a tech industry leader in law gave a presentation at a serious Berlin tech conference about how perhaps the diversity pipeline problem could be traced back to the way that traditionally female spaces of fandom have been minimised online. And it was based around fan fiction, One Direction secret love affair conspiracies, and honouring how people's enthusiasms can lead them to learn about making things online. If you love something and build a fan page, that is a very real way into website building. The talk has led to more talks, years and time spent on One Direction than Sasha Judd had ever anticipated. Sasha, a former partner at top law firm Buddle Finlay, has been an influential figure in tech, being very early on the journey of big firms like Vend, where I know her from, and now running the family office for Rowan Simpson, a recent podcast at Hoku, and identifying and funding the next wave of great companies. Her back-of-a-napkin service for tech founders has helped get many companies off to a great start, and she joins me now to discuss what we term serious and how that seriously affects who feels welcome. Kia ora, how's it going? It's great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on board. Should we rewind right to the beginning? Um, what first got you involved in law and interested you in law because you had a um, a very distinguished and traditional kind of career in law. Yeah, I, I often say that I don't really remember how I wound up at law school other than that I was part of what I hope is um, the last generation of young people um, who was sort of told that if you scored over a certain amount in your final year exams at high school, the only options open to you were really going to law school or med school. And I joke that I don't like blood or sick people. And so law school was it for me, um, which looking back is sort of frustrating. I don't feel like uh, different career options were presented to us. And certainly the kinds of things that I enjoyed doing in my spare time, which were much more technology focused, weren't really fostered. Um, but I loved I loved being a lawyer. I loved the intellectual puzzle of it. I loved being able to help the young companies that I worked with. Um, so it wound up being a very rewarding career at the end. And what kind of law were you specialising in? Because the, the tech side of things that where a lot of people who would be listening to this would know you from is one side, but you're also doing kind of big mergers and acquisitions kind of stuff, eh? That's right. I was a corporate finance lawyer, so I did large-scale mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, wrote prospectuses for um, large companies like Sky and Infratil. Um, the tech work was um, 
it sort of started as a sideline really about six or seven years ago and then just gradually grew as demand increased. Tell me about the back of a napkin idea, um, which is a, a website service. Actually, you, you tell me what it is. Tell me about the back of a napkin. <laughs> yeah, back of a napkin is just a digital tool. You can find it at backofanapkin.co.nz. And we built that really um, to help very early stage collaborators on digital projects. So it's when you get together with some friends or colleagues and start thinking about working on a new idea. And it's before you even know that um, it's something that might turn into a company or a business. Um, it's quite easy once you have a company set up and everyone's shareholders to start to protect your um, legal situation by having a shareholders agreement. But before that, before there's even a company, often people start to work together on something, hack around on an idea, um, and that creates a lot of shared intellectual property and there's nothing to, to help them out when um, there's a fallout or people want to go their separate ways. So um, it was particularly built with app developers in mind who often start to work on something before it turns into a business. Um, but it works for anyone who's getting together to collaborate on a really early stage project. And the idea was just to make it as simple as possible. Uh, the site just asks you five questions and um, once you've answered those, it generates a really short little two-page agreement that you can sign and stick in a drawer and hopefully never have to consult again. What was the genesis of that? Was that something that you put together because you kept seeing um, issues arising around who owns what in the tech space? Or was this a thing that was like stopping people uh, getting going? Because there's that famous thing of um, app developers and people with ideas not wanting to tell, tell anyone. Yeah, it, I mean, it came about from some real-world cases of app developers who had um, started work on a project and then there was, you know, a, a fight or a falling out about how to take it further. Um, and then everybody was at a stalemate because there was no clear ownership about who owned the code or the design or the idea. And, um, and at that point, it's really hard to find a way through. Um, and so that, that's where it came from. Um, but it's, I mean, it's sort of morphed from there because I think people picked it up and used it for lots of different purposes. So, um, yeah, it was just a, a useful little tool. It was a way of trying to strip back what was needed in a legal agreement to its simplest form, I suppose. Lawyers are trained to um, put more and more things into an agreement because we're always looking for um, ways to cover off every possible worst case scenario. And so it sort of flew in the face of that to go, how do we make this as simple as possible? And what, was that something that was part of the initial move into being interested in um, and working with uh, tech and law? What, what was that and how did you come to be involved in, in the early yeah, days I of companies that, like Vend? Yeah, that came about, I guess, as a collision between my personal interests and my professional career. Um, I'd always been enormously involved in technology in my spare time. I spent a lot of time online and in online spaces. Um, and so I was really immersed in the tech sector, but just purely out of personal interest. It had nothing to do really with my day job. Uh, and so it was, I think, 2010, I decided to go to the Webstock conference in Wellington for the first time. And um, and I just took annual leave and, and paid to go myself because I couldn't, there wasn't a way to justify it as a, as a work thing. Uh, but I really wanted to go. The speakers were amazing. The lineup was really good. And um, it was at that conference that I started to meet um, some of our sort of first wave of tech startup founders. And I realized that 
there was a bit of a gap there because they either weren't talking to lawyers or they were talking to the wrong kinds of lawyers. You know, their uncle's divorce lawyer or whatever was helping them out. And um, I could see that what they really needed was good, cost-effective commercial advice from someone who understood what it was that they were doing. Um, and it, was, it wasn't it was a straightforward move for me. Um, there was a bit of pushback. I think most professional advisors remembered the last tech bubble and were kind of like, these companies are all going to go under and no one's going to pay your bills and it's just not a, it's not a space you want to be in. Um, but I stuck with it and, you know, it's a, it's a really energizing space. I loved working alongside founders and helping them get started and, and see them raise capital and grow. And, um, and yeah, Vend was the first of those. I met Vaughn at that first Webstock and he called me up a couple of months later and said he had raised a bit of money from Rowan and Sam and he needed a lawyer. And so that was where it all started. That's so cool. It must, was it a difficult conversation with you know partners at um, Battle Finlay, a very um, prestigious law firm, uh, also because maybe the tolerance for spending money on things like legal services amongst startup founders who are you know famously bootstrapping every cent is probably just not that high. Yeah, I mean, my partners were really supportive, um, but mostly because we worked out ways to do it so that. Um, so that it made sense economically. It was never a loss leader for us. Um, you know, we worked out ways to um, streamline the agreements and make them simple to produce and cost effective. And, you know, the recovery rate was was um, higher than the firm average. So, you know, like it, it, that, that um, practice area was, was never an economic drain. And so, um, you know, there was no reason not to support it as it grew. And as part of that kind of, you know, working with the winners, I, I imagine not every tech company would be one that would be a, a, a winner for a law firm. No, that's right. And we had plenty who came to us for, you know, one shareholders agreement and we never saw them again. But um, as long as you've worked out ways to um, provide those services cost effectively, that's fine. You know, like we were never on the hook for doing a lot of work for a company that then vanished that we hadn't been paid for. So, um, yeah, no, it worked out well. And tell me about the move to Hoku and working with Rowan Simpson. So Rowan Simpson was also, a, a re, he was one of the early founder, uh, funders and um, board members and chair of Vend. And so was he, was that your first entry to knowing him? Yeah, that's right. So we started working together um, on a bunch of his early stage investments and um, I was usually the lawyer for the company uh, because he trusted that, you know, the documents that I would be producing were um, founder friendly but would respect the rights of the investors and, and he has a very founder centric approach. So um, it was a very amicable um, legal relationship and um, I worked on a bunch of his funding rounds over the years at Bend and Timely and Atomic and so on. And uh, so we built a really strong uh, relationship through that um working arrangement and yeah I think um, a couple of years ago he started to think differently about how he would be running his um, operations and, and sort of as, as he said when he announced me coming on board leveling up some of that um, work and it was just a really extraordinary opportunity for me to um, move into more of the commercial side of helping the companies that um, I'd been a legal advisor to and really seeing them grow and go to the next level. So, yeah, it was an awesome chance to do something new. And what kind of stuff are you doing there around actually identifying and picking the next wave of great tech companies as well as helping to get the best out of the current crop of investments? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we get a lot of cold approaches, which is amazing. Um, you know, we get emails from people who know that we're investing in that space and, and want to talk to us about their companies. And so I'll always go through whatever material they've sent and chat to them if it makes sense. Um, but also I think, um, you know, Rowan's built a reputation for being a very founder-focused investor. And so I think, you know, he, he likes to say, and I think he said on the, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that, the best companies choose their investors. Um, and so we're really fortunate to have good relationships that have gone on over a number of years with the founders who we then subsequently invest in. Um, so, you know, we just announced last week that we've made an investment into Thematic, which is a Kiwi company founded by Nathan and Aliona, and we've known them for, um, for several years and talked to them about their journey and the way. And Similarly, you know, our investment before that was into um, Melodics and Sam Gribben is a founder that we've known for a long time. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a relationship building thing. I think that you over time you start to um, work alongside these founders and often it starts out just being a bit of advice and sounding board. And then at the right time, it might make sense for it to also come with capital. What kind of things does having that legal background allow you to do in that kind of a role, helping founders and companies? And I don't know, I, I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, having been lawyers are party to so many discrete problems that other people don't know about, uh, things that don't get talked about. So do you get a special insight into how founders act under um, pressure or in difficult times or how they respond to things that, that helps you kind of pick winners? Um, I don't know if it helps with that. I think being a lawyer makes you extremely risk averse. Um, you know, when I left practice, several people said to me, oh, I can't believe you're not founding your own startup. And I just laughed because there's no way I could do it now. Like I've, I've sort of seen so many things go wrong that I couldn't get up every morning and, and convince myself that I was able to, um, you know, have this sort of faith to lead a startup company. I don't think it requires an extraordinary sort of entrepreneurial spirit that I lack. Um, it's been beaten out of me by legal practice. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think legal training does make you very aware of where risks are going to pop up. And so I, I suppose it just makes me focused on thinking about where those hurdles are likely to be down the track, you know, where where you're going to need to focus on employee retention or intellectual property or um, where disputes might arise between, you know, investors or founders. So, yeah, it, it, I think it probably just makes me aware of those risks. Is it kind of like, you, you know, there are certain industries like entertainment where you get a lot of lawyers in management roles. Uh, and, you know, there are some similarities in terms of like, intellectual property and um, you know making a product once and then licensing it and selling it in lots of places is this somewhere where you know you know, you know like it, it's somewhere where lawyers can thrive or people with legal backgrounds can thrive yeah I mean I, I think so I, I mean I think part of the problem with um, the, the, my generation of lawyers was that we sort of thought that that was the only thing we were good at you know like I, I think we were sort of taught that that law was a career or a vocation that you stuck with for the better part of three decades. Um, and it's encouraging to see uh, younger legal professionals who may never wind up practicing. You know, they've got a law degree, but they go straight into businesses um, or into graduate programs for companies um, and try different things with their legal background because I think um, I think that legal training can be enormously useful um, from a strategic and commercial standpoint, but 
often people don't really consider it because they think that there's this one path that you need to go down. And I guess people like you taking up roles like this as part of that, showing the other sure. pa- pathways yeah. as, as well. And to kind of like use that as a as a bit of a segue into chatting about the um, the, the One Direction talk as well, which is also so much about um, that representation and people seeing things. T- tell me about the genesis of that chat, um, how the tech sector could move in One Direction. How did you come to write it and be presenting that? Um. I came to, I mean, I tell the origin story at the, at the start of the talk, actually. Like, it was a bit of a journey that I went on that started out very much being about a joke. Um, I spend a lot of time online, and I love falling in online rabbit holes. And um, as, as a consequence, wound up in the One Direction fandom one day, clicking around this amazing sort of conspiracy theory that surrounds two of the, the guys in the band. And um, that's the sort of thing that really appeals to me. So I like to tell my friends when I've found crazy things on the internet. And um, the more people I told the story, the more I would get this strange kind of negative reaction about One Direction, like, oh, there's a boy band, or why would you even be looking at something like that? And um, I like to double down in the face of that sort of pushback and so I just started it it became a real joke I would respond to tweets with gifts of One Direction and it became this thing and um and the the mocking kind of increased and um that really started to stick in my core I was like why is it that we um dismiss these things that particularly young women get excited about and it doesn't matter whether it's a band or a movie or a movie star or a book or, you know, people camping out to see Twilight or whatever it is. Um, we're, we're very quick to dismiss these things as being silly or trivial or the young women concerned as being hysterical. And um, the gendered aspect of it really started to bug me. And at the same time, I started to realise um, something that I've probably known all along. I mean, I've been in fandom spaces since... Um, you know, I first got online, that these um, that these young women were teaching themselves an incredible array of quite technical skills to participate in fandom. And they were teaching each other CSS and learning how to use Chrome extensions. And um, they were cutting video and, and manipulating images. And I was like, these girls are, they're already front-end developers and we're just ignoring that this is happening because they're doing it in service of something that we don't care about. Um, and so the... It went from there, really. I started talking to a friend who speaks at a lot of technology conferences, and he's like, you should you should do this as a talk, and introduced me to the organizers of Beyond Tellerine in Berlin. Um, and so I went and gave it there, and then it just sort of took on legs of its own. I was lucky enough to give it at Webstock here in Wellington, and, um, and I've also been really fortunate to give it at um, companies as well in-house. So... Um, at companies like Twitter and Slack and Twilio, and it's cool to see those sort of big valley companies take these kinds of things seriously and start to think more actively about hiring differently and, and um, focusing on their own diversity and inclusion. I love the way that in your talks you you draw the parallels with the way that some fandom is seen as passionate and then some is dismissed as hysterical and there is that gender and also an age kind of um, swing on it. So where you bring the comparisons to sport really hit home with me where you see all of these you know, men in their kind of late 40s still acting like 
15 year olds and somehow that's kind of passion they're following the lions around New Zealand or something and that's all okay but but there, there is that just dismissal of that same level of enthusiasm uh, in, in a gendered way for for young women yeah that's right and I mean you know it's considered to be um, completely normal to have a really deep understanding of all the different players in a sports team, what their stats are, you know, who who captained the All Blacks in what year. Like that's that's just considered, I don't know, patriotism. Um, but to have that same level of dedication and um, commitment to, you know, singles that a band has released or movies that an actor has been in, um, that's not seen as being as compelling. Um, and it is. It, it is unfortunately quite gendered, and I think that that just comes about because, um, particularly in the tech sector, we've had a really homogenous industry for a really long time, and the sorts of people who've been drawn to it and the sorts of people who've succeeded in it uh, have all followed a similar path, um, and they've hired people who are like them, who have been on a similar journey to them, are interested in the same things, and it's meant that our companies and our industry as a whole has turned out to be very, very homogenous, and that's what we're grappling with now. It, it also really hit home with me that point about kind of um, teenage enthusiasms being embraced in men and something to be embarrassed about in women. When I look at two industries that I know um, well from working in them, advertising and technology, and both of them have a uh, a real representation problem with women, especially in the higher roles and the, the really technical roles. Uh, and both of them have a culture where the males never really grow up. Everyone's wearing T-shirts with ironic slogans. They're all kind of, you know, um, embracing the fact that they've never left their teenage years, which is quite weird. Yeah, and it's I, I do think it's about the things that we celebrate, Um and so, you know, when we when we hold up some things as being fun things to preserve from when we were younger, like playing with Lego or the Star Wars, yeah, the Star film Wars or whatever, and, yeah. uh, those things are celebrated as is still being cool when you're older, right? But um, I think the things that young women and young people of color and young queer fans are celebrating online are not necessarily things that are then embraced in the workplace in the same way. And um, I do think we're starting to see a little bit of a change. And one of the things that I talk about in, in some of my subsequent work is around how we get that pathway of legitimacy so that um, things that, that are fan expressions are seen as um, things that you might want to put on a CV or in a work portfolio because they're great pieces of work, whether it's writing or fan art or the things that you've built and made online, um, just because it's about a movie star or about a pop icon shouldn't, you know, the content of it shouldn't matter. Um, and I think trying to overcome that so that there is this pathway of legitimacy is one of the things that we really need to struggle with. And, and you know, there were years ago all of the arguments about high culture, low culture, um, high rail, low rail kind of things. But mm. it, it really, it, it do, there doesn't have to be a value judgment in it, does it? I mean, we don't have to, um, we don't have to say, uh, whether it's right or wrong, but to to identify that it is okay to go, oh, I'm obsessed with football. Oh, I love Star Wars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and that's okay to kind of keep going um, all the way through your adult life. Uh, but a lot yeah. of these other things that people are, are, are passionate about, um, just they, they don't have space in the public sphere without being something to be embarrassed about. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think we're all driven to make and create out of our passions, right? There's always something that we felt strongly enough about that it caused us to first make and share something, whether it was online or when you were a kid or, you know, the first things you wrote stories about at school or the first things you drew pictures about. And it's just that somewhere along the way, you know, in our teenage years, we start to create this hierarchy of cool and it's like, oh, that thing you like is lame. And so you stop talking about it. And um, that's that's the part where I think we need to start to sort of wrestle with, well, why are we making those value judgments about what, what gets people excited? Because surely we want to encourage that, that passion and that creativity. And, and also the kind of the public sphere and the private sphere, which has always been a way that women's... Uh, contributions have been minimized and one thing that really strikes me there is around maker culture so maker culture is seen as you know a great way of spurring innovation and it's seen as a male space but that's only if you uh, ignore all of craft culture where people are making things and sharing uh, their interests and their patterns and their innovations and what they do online but one is seen as a kind of like a spur of the economy and one is seen as something that people do at home in the domestic sphere and that that seems to be kind of like really gendered and weird to me as well yeah and i mean that's not new you can i mean any art historian will talk to you about the difference between you know high art and folk art which is something that's been around for centuries um but you're right that that craft aspect is um is incredibly important and valid um, path to the kinds of things that we're talking about. I saw someone on Twitter last week, actually, um, a woman was saying that her new developer interview, um, you know, the whiteboard interview where you go in and you're expected to sort of solve a puzzle um, as part of a job application, was to hand someone a sweater and ask them to reverse engineer the pattern. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, which is very you know, fluid mathematical equations. That's right, that's right. And, and we are too quick to sort of see these things as being... Um, you know, not as good, too easy, not relevant, um, and unfortunately, yeah, incredibly gendered. So it's, I, I mean, I, I think it's good that we're having the conversation and that people are starting to sort of wrestle with the fact that these distinctions are so artificial, uh, but it does feel quite early days yet. Yeah, and, and there are certain things, like there are a lot of things in that space in the original talk and then your follow-up that you did at Creative Mornings, both of which are, um, are things that can be found uh, online if anyone's interested in going and having a look, uh, that struck home. And that idea of you know that you've, you've mentioned just before as well about the first thing that you felt passionate about to share something. And I think like MySpace was probably a really big uh, place where a lot of people learned their first HTML so they could put like a... Um, I put some kind of sparkly star thing on the front of yeah. the page, you know, and, and those skills do do come back and, and, and become useful in the future. Um, to, to tell me about the feedback that's come out of the talks. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the most surprising things, I think, was people um, coming up to me afterwards and confessing their own first secret projects um, for the web or the first things that they've made and shared online. And um, so much variety, you know, like people who had first made a website to um, track the scores of their favourite sports team or um, had been really inspired by a TV show or a video game. And um, most of them were almost embarrassed to admit it now, and that's the part that I still wrestle with. It's like, why? Like, that that was the thing that got you started. That like, You should be delighted that that was something that um, prompted you to pursue this. Um, I'm really amazed by Neopets, which was not something that I had ever come across in my journey, but the number of women who said to me that their um, 
jobs and careers in technology started out by hacking around with neopets. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, like just just being honest about the things that first brought us online and the first things that we made, I think is so important. And it's not easy. Like when I first gave the talk in Berlin, I put up the first website that I ever made. Um, and that was a, a fan fiction website. And I'd never talked about that publicly before I went on stage and did that. And I did have a little moment where I was like, God, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> and then I thought, but this is the point, right? Like, why Why is it embarrassing? Why is it any more embarrassing than anyone else's first website? Um, it's not. And until we sort of overcome that, um, we're going to continue to struggle. And as a kind of wider theme at the moment about how people who are in leadership positions inside, especially tech companies, but any kind of company structure and how they can um, be an ally for, for making a change in diversity, this kind of thing about making space, which is something that can be a little bit abstract for people to kind of get their heads around, but one really possible uh, and, and practical way to make space is to accept more areas of enthusiasm as being valid and to be interested and for people to be able to show these things. And so it's a really cool thing that people can take uh, take with them from, from your talks. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we talk about diversity and inclusion, and it's um, really important not to leave off the latter half of that because you can hire an incredibly diverse workforce, but if they're not made to feel welcome at work, then they're just going to leave. Um, and so, you know, there's a metaphor online that shared a lot about diversity being invited to the party and inclusion being made to feel welcome once you're there. Um, and and I think that that's um, that this sort of celebration of the things that one another get excited about is a huge part of that. Um, if you come to work and feel like everything that you do outside of work is not cool or that no one around you would be interested in it or doesn't care enough to ask then you don't feel like you're part of the office culture and so I think trying to change that and trying to recognize that you want people around you who like all sorts of things um, and not have that sort of petty dismissal of people's passions is a great first step at making people feel included. There are a few questions we like to ask uh, everyone on the podcast. Um, the first one being, uh, are there any words that you live by or, you know, things that you tell yourself when things get tough? I, I mean, I think the, the words that I'm living by at the moment is just about saying yes to more things, which is the exact opposite of Ron, who likes to focus on saying no so that he can be focused. Um, but what I found is at the moment, um, I don't know what each open door is going to lead to and What's been amazing about um, giving this talk and, and then the subsequent invitations that I've accepted to talk about this or to do further writing is that every time um, it leads on to something else and it sort of helps evolve my thinking, um, gives me the opportunity to meet all kinds of people that I wouldn't have otherwise come across. And I think in terms of spreading this message about how we need to start thinking differently about hiring and qualifications, that's been a really extraordinary opportunity. So, yeah, I'm, I'm saying yes while Rowan is saying no. <laughs> and, and what do you wish you'd known earlier uh, as, as an entrepreneur and someone kind of, you, you know, working with entrepreneurs and, and, and helping to foster these companies? I think the, the main thing I wish I'd sort of focused on earlier was 
um, around trying to deconstruct some of these myths that I think we fall victim to. I think there's a real narrative around building a tech company um, that's just a bit fake. And Ron's written about this, but it's um, it's really easy to think that you can cargo cult these things. And just if you bring together a number of passionate founders and you raise a bit of capital and you have an idea that it's all going to click together and somehow, you know, overnight you'll have built Facebook. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I've learned working alongside these founders is that it's a really hard slog and it requires you to be in the right place at the right time a lot of the time, um, that it's not an overnight thing ever <laughs> and, and that it's a real commitment that's going to take a lot out of you for several years if you really want to build a company that's going to succeed on the world stage and I think being more realistic about that journey is something that we owe it to ourselves to do. And what advice do you give uh, to entrepreneurs or people with an idea when they're starting out? What's, what's the advice you give them to get going? Um, it used to just be get a shareholders agreement. That was my first piece of advice always because no one ever did. And <laughs> it's, the most, it's the most important thing that you can have. So um, the lawyer and me would always start there. Um, now, I guess, because of the diversity and inclusion work I'm doing, it, the, the most valuable piece of advice for me now is about thinking really early about your team because culture beds in so quickly in an organization. And I see so many founders who are pulling together teams early on of people they've worked with before or mates who are prepared to do things for cheap. Um, and what that tends to mean is that their first sort of four, five, six people working on the project are all people who look like them and um, or, or who have been on a similar journey to them. And by the time you get to... 10 white dudes and a dog on your team page, it's it's almost too late. You know, you've created a diversity <laughs> debt there that's really hard to come back from. And so now I'm really trying to encourage founders to think really early on about, you know, who should the first designer be? Should it be your mate who you've worked with on a few projects before? Or should you actually, you know, actively go out and, and try and find someone new um, because trying to get that team um, diverse right from the start is so critical to your future success. That, that's fantastic advice. And no, a dog, you know, being interested in having dogs in the workplace does not equal <laughs> diversity. <laughs> uh, that, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Sasha Judd, the Managing Director of Hoku Group. Uh, it's fantastic. And we will um, post links uh, on the spin-off page uh, to the, uh, the original talk and the Creative Mornings follow-up as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Madeline Chaplin, for recording, and thank you very much for listening. If you are a fan of the spin-off podcasts, uh, you might be interested to know you can now find them on Spotify. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound, and brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? 
With over 300 kilometers of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.